You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The justices built their judicial philosophies on the foundation of their prior lives. From differing perspectives, Ginsburg and Thomas had long experience with, and strong feelings about, civil rights. Roberts had neither. Breyer had given years of thought to the role of the administrative state. Roberts had not. Scalia endorsed an overarching theory of the Constitution. Roberts did not. Kennedy viewed the Supreme Court in the context of an international community of judges. Roberts saw no such thing. But the Chief Justice had spent decades thinking about how to throw plaintiffs in civil cases out of court. The faster, the better. Civil procedure, so dreary even to most lawyers, was for Roberts the surest route to victory for his political side. One of Roberts' fellow conservatives on the D.C. Circuit used to offer his law clerks a small cash bonus if they could find a procedural issue in any case that would allow the court to dismiss the action. Roberts provided no such cash incentives, but he shared the impulse. The real-world implications of these procedural roadblocks were clear. With so many barriers at every stage of the process, plaintiffs' lawyers hesitated before bringing new cases or did not bring them at all. The costs and risks were too high. Legislative efforts at tort reform, like limits on punitive damages, compounded the difficulties for plaintiffs. If claims could never get to trial because of procedural barriers, there would be fewer cases brought in the first place. This was especially true in civil rights cases, in public law cases, in Shea's phrase, because these ambitious undertakings had the greatest procedural vulnerabilities. The defense bar understood these economic realities and, with a sympathetic judiciary, pushed to capitalize on its advantages. As a lawyer and judge, Roberts was more skilled at this kind of work than anyone, all of which helps explain the fate of Lily Ledbetter. Jeffrey Tubin is a staff writer at The New Yorker, senior legal analyst for CNN, and the author of Opening Arguments, The Race of His Life, A Vast Conspiracy, Too Close to Call, and The Nine. His new book is The Oath, The Obama White House, and The Supreme Court. Thank you for joining me, Jeffrey. Hi, Rick. In these two books about the Supreme Court, and I think in all of your books, you're doing something really interesting. You're writing about current events and documenting current events, but for, I think, and from the perspective of history, future historians, you're writing the kind of books that you'd like to have about what was happening 150 years ago. Well, that that's the goal. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you see that as what I'm trying to do, because I think it is. You know, it, it, it is obviously recent events that are the subject of this book. But the, the, my attempt is to do something that is beyond daily or weekly journalism with it, to try to put recent events into broader historical context, at the same time bringing out um, the narratives, the stories of the people involved that might not be so obvious in the day-to-day rush of events. That's what I think is so compelling about both of these books. For all of the insiders' information and all of the fantastic uh, uh, insights that you give us, 
they really both read in a in a very real sense like political thrillers and i think the the narrative aspect that you create is is absolutely superb well that's nice of you to say uh, th- that is really my goal i mean I, I am ever aware that people have lots of demands on their time and if something is boring no one is going to read it no matter how worthy it might be so i am always trying to think of making issues real in the context of stories. I mean, they have to be either the stories of the plaintiffs involved, but more often the story of the justices and their evolution as human beings and public figures. This is uh, the story of the justices and also the institution itself. And one of the things I think was that struck me that kind of at the core of the documents of the events you're documenting and the the events that shape the people are these two kind of uh, societies that formed uh, back in the late 60s or 70s. Uh, On one hand, we had an entire long history of legal schools that tended towards a liberal bent. And out of that, of course, there was a kind of reaction creating uh, the Federalist Society. And then going back against that were the critical legal studies. I'd like you to tell us a little bit about those two different entities and how they have fared. Well, these parts of, of legal life actually have had very significant impacts in the real world. Starting in the 60s, the political ferment that led to the counterculture, that led to the anti-war movement, you know, was very present on campuses, including law schools. And there was a movement for legal change that spurred the Warren Court. I mean, obviously, the Warren Court was was liberal to start with, but there were a series of law professors and, and law students who said, look, the law has to push the 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 society in a more um, equal direction. Starting in 1980 uh, with the election of Ronald Reagan, um, there was a serious backlash to that. And uh, part of that backlash was the formation the following year of the Federalist Society, which is a group of lawyers, conservative in orientation. And um, around that time, Edwin Meese became a senior advisor to Ronald Reagan in the White House and later attorney general. And he said, look, let's have a conservative agenda for the courts, just as there had been a liberal agenda for a long time. Back at the law schools at that time, or in the 80s and into the 90s, there arose a movement called critical legal studies, which was a very far left movement influenced by by European Marxist thinkers, by uh, literary theorists. And and it took the political left in law schools into a kind of faraway land that was very removed from people's day-to-day lives and even from the day-to-day business of courts. And legal liberalism sort of lost its influence, uh, at least to a certain extent in the real world, of course, combined with a more conservative uh, moment in Washington with the long Reagan presidency. All of that added up to a lot of energy in the conservative side, a certain passivity in the liberal side, and John Robertson and Barack Obama reflect those trends in their their individual lives. One of the things you do at the very beginning of the oath is to give a comparison between the two. You say one's this, the other's that. 
And I think what's so fascinating about that is how uh, you completely invert our expectations. So talk about the who's the true conservative among these two. Right. Well, it just I mean, Roberts and and uh, Obama make compelling protagonists to start with. You know, they they are both princes of the meritocracy. They are both um, enormously successful members of the same generation. They're about five years apart in in age. Similar backgrounds in certain respects. They both came of age in Chicago or in its environs. Roberts is from northern Indiana. Both graduates of Harvard Law School, both products of the Harvard Law Review, the student periodical. But when it comes to the law, they really are very different. And Roberts is a product of that conservative counter-revolution. He is someone who really came of age during the Reagan presidency, worked in the Reagan White House, worked in the Reagan Justice Department, and he is someone who wants to see the law changed from where it was during the Warren Court days, ending racial preferences intended to assist African Americans, lower the barriers between church and state, expand executive power, speed up executions, and remove restrictions uh, on abortion. Barack Obama it was obviously a very successful law student, but someone who has not been particularly interested in legal change. Um, he had the opportunity to clerk on the Supreme Court, but didn't. He is someone who believes that political change comes from politics, not from courts. And as as a student, as a legislator, and even as president, he has not put a lot of emphasis on legal change. So it's really Roberts, the apostle of change, and Obama, the apostle of leaving things the way they are, a kind of conservatism. Uh, One of the things you do so well in both the Nine and the Oath is give us us a a great cast of compelling characters and take them through a series of changes both in their characters and what's so fascinating is that the changes they make in their personal views and their personal perspectives have this enormous impact in on all our lives. And I'd like you to just talk about what you do is to make this all extremely clear to us as readers. We read this and it reads like a very clearly written, uh, superbly plotted legal thriller. Well, that's <laughs> nice of you to say again, but but one of the big themes in American politics, maybe the biggest theme of American politics in the last 40 years, I think, is the evolution of the Republican Party, specifically the disappearance of moderate Republicans. And that phenomenon, which is so evident in the Congress, is very evident at the Supreme Court as well. And as we sit here in 2012, it is worth remembering the last three justices to leave the Supreme Court were Sandra Day O'Connor, David Souter, and John Paul Stevens. Three more different people you will never encounter. Arizona, uh, O'Connor, this tall, charismatic uh, former politician from Arizona. Souter, shy, reclusive bachelor from New Hampshire. Uh, Stevens, uh, a... Uh, wily antitrust lawyer from Chicago. But the three of them have something very important in common. They were moderate Republicans who left the Supreme Court totally alienated from the modern Republican Party. And moderate Republicans who dominated the Supreme Court in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s have disappeared from the Supreme Court. And the court is now 
a much more conservative institution because there are five Republicans and four Democrats, and the five Republicans really represent the modern Republican Party. Let's talk about one <clears throat> one of the characters you, you create so well across these two books, uh, Judge Thomas. He is a fascinating man. Has he really not asked a question in six years now, that would be? It would be six and a half. Uh, February 22nd, uh, 2006 was the last time Justice Thomas asked a question, which, which is both revealing but kind of unfortunate because he – this has come to dominate his public uh, reputation, this bizarre insistence on never asking questions, especially in the context of a court where the eight other justices are highly engaged. Uh, in, in oral argument. And I think it underlines the, 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 one of the many paradoxes of Thomas's tenure because um, he is at once among the very most popular of the justices on the court. He is very um, well-liked by his colleagues. He has been um, influential on the court as, as a conservative thinker. Um, several of the court's most important recent decisions, like on gun control or Citizens United or even nearly the healthcare case, um, uh, had their roots in early Justice Thomas opinions. But he has never gotten over the Anita Hill controversy, and his anger is evergreen on the subject. And this bizarre insistence on not asking questions, I think, is a kind of screw you to the legal pundits present company included, that you think you're going to embarrass me into asking questions. Well, I'll be damned. I'm not going to ask questions. And there's this sort of weird standoff that continues. You write very entertainingly that he denounced self-pity and pitied himself. <laughs> well, that, that's right. I mean, he, he, he's very, um, he, he's very, you know, part of his attitude about civil rights is he comes out of this uh, tradition starting in the 19th century with Booker T. Washington of self-sufficiency and we don't need help from the government or anyone else. Um, integration, he feels, has been a mixed blessing at best. He believes that all black institutions had been very successful without, without integration. Uh, but at the same time, you know, he, he feels terribly victimized uh, by the scrutiny he got during the Anita Hill hearings and, and some of the coverage he's gotten since then. So there's this paradox of self-confidence and self-pity. One of the things I think that is so interesting uh, about this book is the way that it, we see the, as you say, it just takes one justice to change the court, the entire court. And I think that's such an, a fascinating observation. Well, it, it's, it's true in a political sense, but it's also true even outside of politics. Byron White, who was on the court for 30 years, used to say that when you change one justice, you change the whole court. Now, with the court so politically polarized between liberals and conservatives, you know, the replacement of the last two justices, Sotomayor and Kagan for Souter and Stevens, has not changed the political makeup of the court very much. But the, insti the, the institution changes. Um, they're, you know, the court is younger than it was. There is now a real division in the court between the four justices in their 70s, two Republicans and two Democrats, uh, the two justices in their 60s, and uh, the three in their 50s. I mean, the, the, the court is going through a generational shift 
We don't know how fast that will take place, but you know the difference between Elena Kagan, who's 52, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's 79, is really considerable. I'd like you to talk about <clears throat> creating these characters because you go through each uh, the way you tell your story is really riveting. You'll give us uh, a starting point, then you'll ratchet back and show us how these justices got to to those points. And I'd like you to just talk about constructing these books because they're very, very well constructed. As I say, they read like thrillers. And that can't be easy given the mountain of daily data that comes out that you yourself even are reporting on. Right. It, it's, it, it, I mean, I, again, thank you for the, the compliment. But that's something I think about a lot, structure, because there are several things happening at the same time. The, the biggest is, I think, is sort of the evolution of the court as an institution. That, that, that is the chronological story, which is at the heart, you know, how the court is a more conservative institution than it was in 2006 when, when Roberts uh, became chief justice. But at the same time, you have to tell the stories of individual cases because that's how the court decides things. And you have to tell the stories of the justices. So those three pieces have to evolve in different ways. And I, I think you're, you're right that my approach is to sort of move the narrative forward, leave a cliffhanger of sorts, and then pull back and say, well, how did we get to this point? And then get to that point again, and then pull back. And it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a process of going back and forth between stories of the individuals, stories of the cases, and what's happening at the court as a whole. And again, the overriding goal is not to be boring. <laughs> it's true. I mean, well, this is a, <clears throat> that's a, a mission accomplished. Well, as you've, uh, uh, that's a phrase that pops up, I think, in the nine. It, it, it does. Um, let's talk about the, the case that you say is uh, a great introduction to the Roberts Court, uh, Hamden versus Rumsfeld. And uh, I love the scene. And this is, too, what you capture so well, where Souter just just shouts, the writ is the writ. Right. And, and, and you know, the, the Hamdan was not the first, but near the beginning of the Supreme Court's uh, engagement with the Bush administration's detainee policies at Guantanamo. And... Um, the story of the court rejecting the Bush administration, you know, one one time after another, is really the story I think of the moderate Republicans on the court who held the balance of power: O'Connor, Souter, Stevens, um, becoming more and more alienated from the Bush administration. And in the frantic days after 9/11, and certainly the the, the period when the the Iraq war seemed to be going so well in 2003, it was very hard to say anything um, in in our political culture that said, you know what, maybe we don't always have to be more aggressive in, in the war on terror. And it's really a rather heroic story on the part of the court of, to a certain extent, leading, but also following the country as um, harder questions began to be asked about how we were behaving in the interests of national security. One of my favorite characters in this book is Sandra Day O'Connor. And she plays a very interesting role in the first and second half of the book. I'd like you to just talk about her role for so many decades as the as the 
really how it was the O'Connor court. Yeah, I mean, look, I confess to a deep admiration and fondness for Sandra Day O'Connor. She is, as I've written, and I challenge anyone to disagree with me, the most influential woman in American history, the the woman who has exercised the most power um, with um, the greatest effect uh, of any woman um, since since 1776. And um, she has done it in, in, in with, to a certain extent, a legal view, but also a very acute political sense of where the country is and how far you can push the country in one direction or another and when the court can lead and when the court should follow. Uh, I certainly don't agree with everything Sandra Day O'Connor did as a uh, Supreme Court justice. I certainly did not agree with her vote in Bush v. Gore. But uh, I I think um, her alienation from the Bush administration is really the story of um, the Republican Party's evolution to the right and the problems that the Republican Party has had um, holding on to the center in, 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 since the Bush years. One, one thing I found myself rather surprised by as I read both the nine and this book was how, I, I guess, kind of likable uh, Antonin Scalia was. I, I, yeah, I mean, you know, w- when I started um, writing about the court as an institution, I was inspired by a book that I'm sure is familiar to you and many of your listeners, which is The Brethren by Bob Woodward and Scott Armstrong, which was really the first behind-the-scenes book about the Supreme Court. And that was a book published in 1979, a long time ago, that talked about how there was so much internal tension on Warren Burger's uh, Supreme Court that the, a lot of the justices didn't like each other. They certainly didn't like Burger, and I anticipated that that was going to be the case in the Rehnquist Court as well. Well, that's not the case at the Rehnquist Court or in the Roberts Court. The justices get along pretty well, and a, as is widely known, Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg, who are political adversaries frequently, are are, are quite good friends, and, and the court has managed to. Um, keep civil relationships, um, even in the face of you know intensely felt political disagreements. One of the things about Roberts, he's such a fascinating character, and you, you open this book with the the it's called the oath, and you op- and that's you open it with that for a reason. And I think one thing you do very well in this opening is give us a portrait of a man who has you know an amazing memory, and then manages. To somehow forget three <laughs> short lines. Well, it's you know one of the things I love about being a journalist is that you know you you get to sort of watch history unfold. But one of the things that's not so great about being a journalist is that the circus moves on very quickly, and then stories get forgotten. And 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 one of those was the botched oath, which you know obviously was January twentieth, two thousand nine, and everybody remembers there was a mistake. But I decided to go back and see what the heck happened. Why did this happen? And there's really a story there, and that's that's the prologue uh, of the nine. You know, a lot of people at the time thought, wow, you know, Roberts just sort of blew it off. He didn't prepare, and that couldn't be farther from the truth. John Roberts uh, prepared so much, rehearsed so much, that at one point his wife said to him, at this point the dog thinks it's the president. Even more peculiarly, what happened was Roberts and his top aide 
went over the oath very, very carefully and divided the words how it would be administered, and they put it on a card, which they sent in an email to a secretary on the congressional committee that was supervising the inauguration. But that secretary either didn't read the attachment, deleted it, forgot about it, ignored it, but never forwarded it to Obama's transition office. So Obama arrived at the Capitol on January 20th, not knowing how Roberts was going to divide up the words. And if you listen to the YouTube of the inauguration, as I have about two or 300 times, what you see is um, Obama interrupted Roberts. Um, I, Barack Obama, do solemnly swear. He said he he said he didn't let Roberts finish do solemnly swear. That uncharacteristically flustered Roberts. And the next line, uh, will faithfully execute the office of president of the United States, was totally messed up by Roberts. He just got flustered and, and messed it up. And that is, um, that's what happened. And that's the problem. And that's how they, the, ultimately why they decided to do it again the next day. One thing that's so interesting I found was how tense that you managed to make history seem we all know what happened throughout pretty much this entire book if we've been conscious. But to rewrite it and infuse what we all know with tension takes a, a lot of doing. I mean, we, we all know what happened with the, the uh, Citizens United decision. Talk about rewriting history in a manner that makes what we already know to have happened seem tense and exciting. Well, I think one of the challenges of, of writing books is, you know, to recognize that history is not inevitable. Things did not have to unfold the way they did. And to approach it with that sort of open mind and try to put yourself in the place of the protagonists as the events were unfolding, that's to me much more interesting than simply saying, well, obviously it all was destined to work out the way it did. It was not all destined to work out the way it did. You know, the most dramatic example being the, the healthcare case. I mean, I myself was dramatically wrong in how I predicted it would come out. Now, fortunately, I got to do more reporting after the, after the decision in June, but all of these issues, uh, all of these cases, you know, it, it was not clear. It was not clear who was going to be nominated to the Supreme Court. Obviously, we all know that Sonia Sotomayor and, and Elena Kagan were nominated. But, you know, these were decisions that Barack Obama had to make, and he could have made alternative ones. You do a great job of uh, creating the character of Barack Obama in this book. And I think it's in a Barack Obama that we all sort of know, but you— uh, after reading this, I really understand him and look at even just what happened recently in the debates. That makes a whole heck of a lot more sense having read this book. Well, yeah, one of the things I wanted to do with Obama in, in this book is really focus on him as a lawyer, as a law student, as a president picking justices and judges. You know, zero in on that part of his character. Obviously, he's a very well-known person at this point, and parts of his biography are, are, are extremely well-known. And I certainly didn't want to write a, a new biography of, of Barack Obama. But, you know, there is this part of his life, um, the president of the Harvard Law Review, the... the um, uh, young lawyer in Chicago, 
um, the state senator, the, the senator briefly. And, and the president who had these responsibilities for selecting judge, justices and judges, that prism is the way I wanted to look at him. And you see that um, he is a cautious person. He is someone who is not um, a radical in any way and um, perhaps even to a fault has chosen to be cautious uh, in the legal realm. Talk a little bit about uh, you. You uh, talk about Phillips, and uh, say that he has. You know, you talk about his best, the, the evidence of his best instincts and his worst. And you give uh, Snyder versus Phelps, which is the Westboro case of, of Roberts at his best. So talk about how that's at his best, and then Arizona versus uh, free Arizona free enterprise. Club versus Bennett as worse. Talk about those different aspects of well, Robert's character. Um, the the Phelps case, people may remember, it relates to the um, the Westboro Baptist Church, which is neither from Westboro, neither nor Baptist nor a church. It's these horrible group of people uh, from Kansas who it's basically just one extended family where they engage in these horrible, bigoted, anti-gay protests, including at the funerals of service members who were killed in Iraq. They, um, I mean, if you can imagine something so sinister, they would go to these funerals of people they didn't know and say, um, it's good that this person was killed because this is God's punishment for um, allowing homosexuality. I mean, don't look for sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. But one of these families, um, where there was a protest, um, sued the, the Westboro Baptist Church and was awarded $3 million. I mean, you can imagine how a jury uh, would be appalled at uh, this sort of conduct on the part of these protesters. Well, um, the case was appealed to the Supreme Court, and Roberts wrote an opinion, 8 to 1, overturning the judgment, saying, look, this is uh, why we have a First Amendment, to protect unpopular speech. And it was true that these church members did not disrupt the funeral. They were at some remove. And so they were simply expressing their political views on political issues. And that's something our Constitution pr pr protects. And, and Roberts, and this is another factor that's very important about him, is that he's a beautiful writer. Uh, many of the justices are not. Um, he happens to be someone who just writes great prose. And he wrote an opinion in, in the, 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 the Phelps case where he said, look, we understand how painful this situation is for the plaintiff's family. We, we, we certainly don't diminish that in any other way, but we have created a system where uh, the government simply does not uh, regulate or punish political speech. And, and I thought it was very eloquent and, and very appropriate under the circumstances. One of the biggest victories for the conservative Republicans who these justices essentially represent is a Citizens United case. So talk about that because you do such a great job of setting up this case. As you say, it contains the great themes of Supreme Court history dating back to, what, the 1930s and uh, even Even before, yeah. to the turn of the last century. I mean, Citizens United is just 
it's a great, rich subject for me because it, it, it is obviously just very important in and of itself. I mean, it, it has transformed um, the way political campaigns are financed in America, and that's obviously a very big deal. So it just it's important on its own terms. But it also fits into so many interesting themes in the history of the Supreme Court, and so many of the individuals involved had key moments in that case. It was Elena Kagan's first case she ever argued. She was the Solicitor General. It was the first case that Sonia Sotomayor heard as a Supreme Court justice. It was John Paul Stevens, essentially his farewell to the Supreme Court bench. It was David Souter's, the, 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 what you know, almost drove him off the court. And it was the only case in 10 years that was re-argued. So there was a very interesting behind-the-scenes saga involving the court and Citizens United. And it was a very clear intersection of legal abstractions and low-down, dirty politics. This was a decision that helps Republicans. Everyone knows it. Everyone knew it then. And that is something you can't ignore when telling the story. Talk about one of the things that I thought was so interesting was uh, Roberts, his stroke of genius that put the liberals in a box. And this uh, really peeved. Uh, Stevens, was it? I believe it was. Well, Souter and Stevens at different times. Souter in particular, yeah. And Stevens, didn't Stevens write a 99 page? He wrote a 90 page dissent. Um, <laughs> what made the case so significant was that. The actual facts of the case were very peculiar and very limited. Uh, just to tell them briefly, the nonprofit group um, named Citizens United um, made movies. They made politically oriented movies, one called Hillary the Movie, which was very critical of Hillary Clinton, and it was broadcast, or they wanted to broadcast it during the uh, Democratic primaries in 2008. Well, the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, said under the McCain-Feingold rule, you can't do that. Uh, because it's like a political commercial. And McCain-Feingold limits spending by corporations, including nonprofit corporations, in the period right before elections. Well, they could have decided this case on very narrow grounds. They could have said, well, this was a nonprofit. This case, this wasn't really a political commercial. It was more like a film. Instead, the conservatives used Citizens United to rewrite 100 years of Supreme Court precedent. And Souter, in particular, was just appalled at the procedural gamesmanship of how Roberts and company turned this relatively minor case into a revolution in campaign finance. And he was getting ready to blow the whistle in a really kind of ugly way. Uh, and, and, and wash some of the court's dirty laundry in public. But Roberts had the genius idea of saying, okay, well, you think we, we did this unfairly. We sort of sandbag you. We are going to re-argue the case. We are going to hear the, the whole argument all over again, but inform everyone that we are thinking of doing a major change in the law. So there'll be no sandbagging involved. Brilliant stroke of gamesmanship by, by Roberts reaching the same result he was always going to reach, but doing it in a way that sort of cut the procedural argument away from um, the more liberal members of the court. Undoing this hundred years of precedent, this is a big deal 
for the the for these uh, conservative candidate conservative justices. Uh, this is uh, something called in stare decisis. Stare decisis. Stare decisis. Stare decisis, which is which is just an, a Latin term for the rule of precedent. I mean, the Supreme Court operates according to the rules of precedent. You know, they, they are supposed to they are supposed to honor the, the prior decisions of the court. But what makes the Supreme Court different from other courts is they don't always have to follow precedent. They, uniquely among um, courts, can change their prior precedents. They, they say they don't like to do it very often, but liberals like to get rid of conservative precedents. Conservatives like to get rid of liberal precedents. And here we had a situation where the, the Roberts Court didn't just get rid of minor precedents, but major precedents that, that, that the court had been honoring for decades about uh, when Congress can regulate campaign contributions and campaign speech. And the implications are really dramatic and serious. We're living through those even, even as, as, we, as we speak. Absolutely. As we speak. One thing I thought was, was really interesting was your observation that Thomas and uh, Scalia are interested in essentially an 18th century version of, of the law. And I thought, my God, that's that's frightening. Well, it, it, but but that's what that's you know originalism is something that's been mm-hmm. talked about a lot in recent in, in years, and that's the that's their judicial philosophy, which is that the Constitution should be interpreted as the words were understood when the Constitution was ratified in the late 18th century. That. Unless you follow precisely the intent of the framers, judges are simply making it up. There are no restrictions. So Thomas and Scalia believe in what's called originalism. And, you know, my favorite response to originalism actually came from Samuel Alito, who is obviously no liberal. But there was an argument in a case out of here in California a couple of years ago about California passed a law that said violent video games had to be labeled in a certain way. And Scalia was asking the lawyer a series of questions about that. And finally, Alito jumped in and said, what I think Justice Scalia is asking is, what did James Madison think about violent video games? Did he enjoy them? And and I think that really captures some of the problems of originalism, which is that it's very difficult to view the precise understanding of the framers as binding when they couldn't possibly anticipate the, the kinds of questions that, that have come up, whether it's about violent video games or wiretapping or, you know, drone strikes or, you know, patent cases, all of which, you know, come out of a country that's almost unrecognizable um, from the 18th century. You just mentioned Thomas, and, and <laughs> there's a picture in this book of uh, Ginny Thomas at a Tea Party rally, wearing like a little blue corona. Well, it's green. It's the green. statue. Of, it's like a yeah. Statue of Liberty foam hat. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that it's what an interesting picture. character. It's a funny picture. Well, you know, and and this became a big deal in the lead up to the healthcare case because, um, you know, Ginny Thomas has been a political activist for decades. She um, has been a conservative activist since she before she met Clarence Thomas in the eighties. And during the Obama presidency, she became very outspoken in opposing uh, the health care plan in particular. And a lot of people, Democrats, started saying that 
Clarence Thomas should recuse himself because he had a conflict because she had been so outspoken on the subject. I actually think Thomas was right to stay in the case. I don't think he should have recused himself because, you know, this is her career. She is a political activist. She's been one since before. She even met Thomas. They had no financial stake in the outcome of the case. And, you know, I, I think it was quite obvious the reason they were trying to get them off the case uh, trying to get Thomas off the case is because they knew how he was going to vote. This was not about ethics. This was about his substantive views. And that's one of the things I don't like about Washington. They tend to sort of camouflage substantive disputes into fake ethical controversies. And I think this was really a fake ethical controversy. Talk a little bit about the health care debates and the health care decision. Uh, this was like a, a very slow motion kind of train wreck that we could all see coming, and the justices uh, surely must have seen it as well. Well, it was—it's just an amazing drama. The, the core of the controversy was over the individual mandate, the requirement in the Affordable Care Act that individuals buy health insurance, and that had been a Republican proposal for years. And no one had ever suggested it was unconstitutional. But once Obama proposed it, there started to be this uh, momentum to argue that it was unconstitutional. And that wound up being leading to several lower courts striking it down. And so there was this incredibly dramatic confrontation in the Supreme Court, three days of arguments in March, where it certainly appeared to me, certainly, that the court was going to overturn, that, that, that the, the five Republican justices were very hostile to the law and didn't turn out that way. Well, talk about reporting on that, making predictions and then having to deal with the reality of things. The difference between your work as a reporter and how that feeds and feeds to and feeds back from your work as a writer uh, of these longer, more permanent pieces? You know, I, I work in different mediums. I, I, I work, I write books, I write magazine articles, but I also work for CNN. And one, one of the things we do at CNN, and we're very proud of it, is we do breaking news. And I'm the legal analyst, and it was my job to analyze the arguments. And I went out on a limb uh, based on seeing a lot of Supreme Court arguments. I said that I thought they were getting ready to overturn the law because the five Republican justices had been so hostile to Donald Verrilli, the Supreme, the, the Solicitor General, defending the law. And, um, you know, I got a lot of attention and, and, you know, I played the game and I took my chances and I, and I was wrong. Um, and I, I cheerfully admit that. And I've been eating humble pie and crow about that ever since. Uh, you know, what, what I was able to do to write the oath was to go back and figure out, well, why did Roberts, for the first and only time in his career as chief justice, join with the four liberals in a five to four case? And I think it's, a, it's an interesting, complicated story that Roberts, um, you know, sees himself not just as any justice, but as the chief justice. And he sees himself as the custodian of the court's public reputation. And he sees... Uh, he does not want the court to be seen as just another place where Democrats and Republicans fight, just like a nine-member House of Representatives. And the other four conservatives kind of overplayed their hand. They didn't want to just strike down the individual mandate. They wanted to strike down the whole law. And Roberts knew that this would be seen as the third in a trilogy of 
Bush v. Gore in 2000, Citizens United 2010, the Obamacare case in 2012, where five Republicans trashed four liberals. And he didn't want to see the court portrayed that way. So he found a way to uphold the core of the law under this novel argument that had not really been discussed much during the case, that, that, that it was a legitimate use of the Congress's taxing power. I think what's so interesting about your observation is, is that you say that Roberts, and this kind of goes with your observation too, that he has a literary style, that Roberts is in it for the long game. And that you think that in the long game, this may not prove to be as much of a problem for the Republican and conservative majority as it appears to at the, in the moment. Well, certainly it was a short-term loss. I mean, the, the Republican Party has done everything it possibly could to overturn this law, including not have it be passed in the first place. So it was a short-term loss for the conservative movement. But I think Roberts successfully got the Supreme Court out of the 2012 presidential campaign. It's, it has not been an issue, and I think that's a good thing from his perspective. Um, he has given himself the political space to remain as conservative as he wants to be in, in, in many, many future cases because he is now insulated from the charge that he is a political hack. And the court preserves his reputation as at least somewhat apart from the day-to-day -day politics of what's going on in Washington. And all of that, I think, contributes to the long game uh, that he's playing. Talk about some of the next chapters in the long game, some of the, the upcoming decisions that you see as being particularly interesting. I mean, we're here in California, Prop 8. Uh, it's now right. a play. Yes. I mean, um, well... Civil rights is going to be very big this term. Um, the court is going to look at the future of affirmative action in a case out of the University of Texas, which really could change how college admission works in this country. They are looking at the future of the Voting Rights Act. And um, there are two cases relating to same-sex marriage, the Proposition 8 case and um, the Defense of Marriage Act case, the DOMA case, which the court may decide to review either, both, or neither of those. And those are particularly interesting, I think, because they present different challenges on essentially the same issue of same-sex marriage. Have either of those been granted cert? No, they haven't granted cert on either one. They're both pending, so we don't know whether they're going to grant or deny. We should know that in, in, in the next month or so. And, and, I, and I think they're very different cases, and I think the politics of them are very different. And if, you know, just to explain that, the Defense of Marriage Act says that the federal government will uh, not recognize same-sex marriages, even in states where it's legal. So in Massachusetts, uh, there was a, two women who were married. Uh, one of them died. Under IRS rules, surviving spouses usually get the other spouse's money tax-free. But because of DOMA, the surviving woman had to pay taxes on that money. So she challenged the law, and the First Circuit overturned the law, and the Obama administration supported uh, that decision. The Proposition 8 case is very different. That's a case which basically raises the more profound question of, under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, is it permissible to deny gay people the right to get married? That case potentially could, could result in every state in the union being required to offer same-sex marriages. I think the court, even the justices who favor same-sex marriage, 
are going to be very wary about ordering every state in the union just like that to to grant same-sex marriages. I think they know how politically uh, incendiary that would be. And my guess is they will deny cert in the Prop 8 case, let same-sex marriage become legal, as it would in California, and thus let it develop on a state-by-state basis. The, The DOMA case is very different. The DOMA law only applies in states that already have same-sex marriage. So they would not be imposing it in any way. And I think Justice Kennedy, who has been the swing vote in this area, tends to be pretty liberal on this one issue. And I think he'll vote with the liberals to overturn DOMA. One of the things I think that's so interesting in the way you describe the court is that you describe it not as much as the Roberts Court or the Rehnquist Court, but as the O'Connor Court and the Kennedy Court. And I think that this is a very astute observation. Well, you know, the, 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 there are only certain justices whose votes tend to be in play on any given case. The, the views of most of the justices are very predictable. In the current court, the four conservatives, Roberts, Scalia, Alito, and Thomas, tend to vote together most of the time. The four liberals, Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, tend to vote together most of the time. That leads people to describe Anthony Kennedy as a moderate. I think that's not really accurate. He actually is sort of extreme in his views. He just has unpredictable enthusiasms, and, and one of them appears to be gay rights, although, as we saw in the, in the health care case, he, he lined up with the most conservatives in that area. So he, he's, he's mercurial. He's not moderate. You mentioned the 14th Amendment, and there was just a little tantalizing thing in this book that I thought that just really caught my attention, where um, one of Obama's uh, law professors had said that perhaps the 14th Amendment might apply to economic equality. Well, that was, a, uh, that was an idea in the, in, in the um, far-off liberal days of the 1960s, where you know liberals were trying to come up with theories that were move the society in a more in the direction of equality. And, you know, obviously, when you have a case like Brown v. Board of Education, it says that you cannot segregate public schools anymore. You cannot say blacks go here, whites go here. Well, they they started pushing that direction. They started pushing that theory. And they said, well, what about other areas of inequality? Is it is it constitutional to have school districts that some are very rich, some are very poor? That led to the idea that, well, is it constitutional that some people are so much poorer than others? Now, I hasten to add that movement for economic equality as guaranteed by the 14th Amendment, it never really got off the ground because even the liberal justices were never uh, willing to go that far to say that there was some sort of constitutional right to economic equality, but it just shows how ideas in the academy can sometimes shape what goes on in the real world. You have so many uh, fascinating uh, stories in this book, and, and I think that one of the things that is uh, so interesting about this is the way that you give us a story arc with, with Roberts, you know, at the head and tail of it. So just talk about telling that kind of story and keeping it, you know, almost like a, a novel. Right. Well, you know, th- I, I view the justices as characters. You know, they, they, they are characters. That's how I think of them. And, you know, characters are not static. Their, their, their lives change. Their, uh, you know, their, their 
views change. You know, J John Roberts um, has learned to become the leader of a court. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's husband died. And, you know, that affects whether she leaves the court or not, because, you know, now she's a widow and she could only look back, you know, look forward to an empty apartment uh, where she lives. That might lead her to stay longer. I mean, these kinds of issues matter uh, at the Supreme Court. And, you know, it's very important to me to treat these justices as human beings, not as sort of the embodiment of legal abstractions. I've been speaking with Jeffrey Tubin. His new book is The Oath, The Obama White House and the Supreme Court. Thank you for joining me, Jeffrey. Great to join you, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.